You are running a trace on 2.1, a Netrunner Reboot Project podcast. Episode 19, The Highest Level of Security. Hey, this is Remy. Our title card this time around is Green Level Clearance, which I will discuss in more detail a bit later. The flavor text on this card says, Green 2 Clearance is the highest level of security a corp can gain access to. Legally, anyway. Uh, The art is from Mauricio Herrera, who we will discuss also a little bit later on. And Green Level Clearance comes from A Study in Static, which is a corp card, and it is the focus of kind of a a good chunk of this episode. Uh, This episode is going to be a little bit pack review-y, and some of the couple early segments are going to be a a little bit on the more basic side. Hope you want to stick around for the ride. Anonymous tip, running early. I mainly just wanted to share this post I came across from David Jensen. His username is not yet Superman on Board Game Geek from late February of 2013. And, you know, it's, it's some basic information, but I thought it might fit in. Just kind of a nice reminder. He says, in general... Run before you have programs out. All you have to worry about are Neurokatana, four credits, and Wall of Thorns, eight credits. Well, okay, in Reboot, Wall of Thorns is only six credits, but still. And even then, it doesn't matter if you have cards you don't absolutely need. Know your corp opponent. NBN and Wayland. Avoid tags. And be aware of running against unrezzed archers. Jinteki, be patient and ensure you have two credits to score fetal AI. Three cards to avoid snares, but don't worry if the corp has less than four credits. Find some room for exposed cards. HB, remember to run early so you can use clicks to break through tricky ice. The last part is a general rule. Run early in your turn to react to surprise tags or other corp traps. Finally, maintain the element of surprise. Keep a breaker in your hand so your opponent feels comfortable. Do the same with any out-of-faction cards which which your opponent might not expect. Account Siphon, for example, in non-criminal decks, is brutal. As well it should be. It's a very high-influence card. So, yes, those are some basic reminders. But, you know, I've been uh, I've been playing uh, quite a bit here the last few weeks, few months. And I'll be honest, some of these, even these basic things, I just kind of consistently forget. I should actually probably take note of the sorts of mistakes that I consistently make in games and maybe make that the subject of an anonymous tip for myself. 
Archived Memories Three Different Types of Ice As I was again perusing old Board Game Geek threads, I came across this one, which uh, is just an interesting question. It also has some interesting um, reasoning, uh, flavor reasons that are given, and also design reasons for some of the choices that were made in Netrunner. And, um, you know, I have a lot of experience playing the game, but I still read through this entire thread, so maybe you'll like to listen through it. But hey, if you get bored, check the show notes and skip ahead to the next section. Anyway, the name of the thread is, from a design standpoint, why are there different types of ice ice breakers? And it's from January 22nd of 2013. The original poster's username was Private Parts, P-V-T-P-A-R-T-S. Here's the original post. My history thus far with Netrunner is quite limited. I've read the rules a couple of times, played a pseudo game on Octagon, and am currently sitting on an, unfortunately, unplayed copy. With this limited knowledge, I'm puzzled by why there are different types of icebreakers which can only interact with certain types of ice. I believe there are three types total. To me, I would feel it leads to frustrating moments, whereas the runner you can't get through ice simply because you are not drawing the correct types. I could also think of strategy-slash-bluffing opportunities that would be encouraged by this type matching. How does this play out in a real game? Martin Presley, uh, username Hubaju, says, It creates three distinct phases in the game. When the runner has no icebreakers, when they have some, and when they have their full rig. I think of these as early, middle, and late game, respectively. If there was only one kind of ice, the middle part of the game would not exist. And since the middle game is generally where the corp is strongest, changing that would likely mean the runner would win a high percent of the time. Ben Finkel, username Azeltir, A-Z-E-L-T-I-R, Multiple ice types has a pretty broad range of effects. Firstly, it is the largest element of the pacing of the game, delineating the game into the early, mid, and late sections. In the early game, the corp doesn't have enough ice to protect everywhere, and the runner might be able to break one type. In the mid game, the corp has all relevant servers defended, such that the runner is now obligated to, quote, complete his rig, unquote, by getting the correct icebreakers, which might be all of them. Finally, in the late game, the runner has a full rig that can deal with barriers, code gates, and sentries, and it now comes down to the economics of running. Secondly, differentiating ice types lets the corp have some assurance of at least short-term safety from runner intrusions somewhere. Remember that the corp has at least three servers to defend most of the time, R&D, HQ, and a remote. Even with one icebreaker, the runner has a decent shot of being able to get through at least one of those, and the runner has tricks like sneak door beta and inside job to make their job even easier. Thirdly, the ice types all behave differently. Barriers all end the run. Sentries all do something that affects the world outside the run, like tracing, trashing, or damage. And code gates chained the rules, affecting future ice, taking away clicks, or whatever. 
If you get a killer, icebreaker, then running is mostly risk-free. If you run with a fractor, then you're quite likely to get a successful run, but you might suffer some consequences on the way. Now, as for your concern about not drawing the right icebreakers, once again, the runner has a lot of options. Foremost, the card's special order, and now test run. This, this is Cyber Exodus era from the previous data pack, so test run was still new. Allows the runner to fetch the right tool for the job, searching the deck for whatever he needs. Secondly, AI icebreakers like Crypsis can inefficiently let the runner break any ice. Finally, the runner really can just brute force draw, aided by cards like Wildside and Diesel, to find icebreakers, especially if he includes multiple copies or even multiple breakers of the same type in his deck. Joao Almeida, username Raklia, H-R-A-K-L-E-A, responding to the point of the original post where uh, the original poster said, I'd feel like it leads to frustrating moments, says, but you would feel frustrated as a corp if the opposing runner had a program that can break all of your defenses for a cheap price on his starting grip. The game would suck hard if there weren't different types of ice. Prolific poster Byron C. Zimmer says, In physical security, like a castle or fort, there are three traditional defenses. Walls keep them out. Choke points funnel them to specific defensive points, where passphrases are needed to gain access, and guards actively engage the intruders. In computer security, these three traditional defensive schemes are translated to 1. firewalls and other barriers, 2. data encryption and other code gates, 3. active intrusion countermeasures and sentries. These defenses and specific tools to break them, have been in cyberpunk and hacker fiction since the early days. They are reflected in Cyberpunk 2020, the progenitor of Netrunner, the card game, Shadowrun, and multiple other RPG systems. Stephen Tu, username Tuism, T-U-I-S-M, says, I like this perspective of it. Then there's, of course, traps, like burning tar and spike pits, which are usually one-off one for a massive effect. And finally, James Abil, Abilie, username Flame Juggler, who I think was an early beta tester, pre-release. I think I've seen him comment on things from uh, before the game was actually seen wide release, if I'm remembering my users correctly. He says, from a design standpoint, it also gives further distinctions between factions, as each has its strengths and weaknesses in its arsenal. For instance, Wayland has the best barriers. Anarchs have the best way to break barriers. Shapers are great versus code gates, but usually splash for their killers, etc. Satellite Uplink, a study in static, the corp side. I said last time that there were nine of the 11 corp cars that had received an adjustment, and that is true in that nine have been buffed, but there is also one nerf, which I missed on the first pass, 
So really only one card remains the same. That one nerf comes in Wayland in the form of Oversight AI, which was originally a one-cost operation, now a two-cost, so one credit increase for the cost. It is a condition operation in which you res a piece of ice, ignoring all costs, all costs, including, you know, an archer has a cost, and install Oversight AI on that ice as a hosted condition counter with the text, Trash host ice if all its subroutines are broken during a single encounter. Here are the cards that have been buffed. In Hasbioroid, green level clearance, a one-cost operation, a transaction with one influence, in which you gain three credits and draw now two cards instead of one. Hourglass. As I mentioned last time, a buff bracket quarter-finalist, a code gate whose res cost has gone from 5 to 1, is strength 4, also 2 influence, and has 3 subroutines, each of which say, runner, the runner loses a click if able. Both Jinteki cards have been buffed, dedicated server, an asset with a res cost of 1 now instead of 3, also a trash cost of three, it's two influence, gives you two recurring credits for resing ice. The artist here is Emilio Rodriguez. And Bullfrog, a code gate whose res cost has gone from three to zero, is strength four and two influence. Notice that res cost of zero. <laughs> uh, remember, sometimes when something has been adjusted to that degree, that's a... This card is not good in a way that Reboot can make it good. So it's changed to zero just in case someone wants to play around with it. It has the one subroutine being a side game. And in the event the Corp wins by selecting a different number of credits, you move Bullfrog so that it is the outermost piece of ice protecting another server. And then the runner continues the run from that new position and is now running on that new server. NBN's two cards are also both buffed. Uroboros, uh, Sentry, with, has gone a res cost of 6 down to 4. It is Strength 4, 2 Influence, and has two subroutines. Trace 4, Runner cannot make another run this turn. And the other one is also Trace 4, to end the run. The artist here is Liga Smilskalna, who is uh, the first focus on the Maker's Eye that we had. Also, Net Police, NBN's asset with a res cost of 1, and trash cost has gone from 1 to 5. It is also 2 influence, where you have X recurring credits to use on traces, where X is equal to the runner's link. And finally, uh, the other three Wayland cards all got buffed. The identity in this pack, Wayland Consortium, because we built it is now a 4522 identity as 22 influence instead of just 15 and its ability is one recurring credit to use for advancing ice government contracts a 53 agenda you can after scoring it will you have gained a new ability that you click click and gain now 5 credits instead of 4 what it was previously and tyrant 
a barrier with a res cost has gone from 7 down to 5, is strength 4, 2 influence, and each a time you advance the card, you give it an end-the-run subroutine. You can only advance it while rezzed. So this is part of the same suite of ice that Woodcutter is part of. And the one unchanged card in the deck, in the pack, is the one neutral card, False Lead, a 3-1 agenda. Forfeit this agenda, and if the runner has two or more clicks remaining, they lose. Click, click. Matrix Analyzer. Now let's take a look at some of the changes. I'm not going to take time to discuss all of the changes. Of course, we want to discuss the nerf. In fact, Oversight AI is the most recent nerf we've encountered so far. It was only nerfed in the patch at the end of March, this past March, so like six months ago. And from those patch notes, here's what the big boy said. Uh, I never read these patch notes on the podcast because it predates the start of this podcast by about a month. Blue Sun is a very strong deck. It's performing well in Constructed, and data from the pre-Constructed League backs this up as well. This is a targeted nerf meant to leave other Wayland decks essentially unaffected. The biggest concern with Blue Sun is its staggeringly good performance against Anarch. In addition to just being a one-credit nerf to the profit generated by OAI, Oversight AI, increasing the cost makes it harder to both OAI an ICE and protect it from David with another ICE. This can lead to Anarchs having an additional turn to react to the combo. So that might not mean anything if you're following along with me here from the beginning, but Blue Sun's an identity that comes along uh, a little bit later. As for the buffs, there are obviously a lot to choose from. I'm not sure what I can add is interesting to many of them beyond just, yeah, its res cost being less makes it better. Or, I guess in the case of Net Police, its trash cost is more, and so that's better. But let me comment on briefly on three cards. Tyrant. I'll discuss that more in the next segment since it's a piece of ice, but as I've said, it's of the same family, the same suite as the much derided woodcutter. But while woodcutter had its res cost reduced from four all the way down to zero, remember what zero means in the reboot project, Tyrant's cost has only been reduced from seven to five. Now, in some ways, this feels a little backwards because woodcutter is the sentry. Normally, they cost more. But Tyrant is the barrier, and normally barriers cost less. But part of the reason is, of course, the strength. Woodcutter's strength is lower at 2, Tyrant's is lower at 4, but mostly I think it's the effect. Woodcutter's added subroutines from advancement are net damage. That's simply just not as useful as Tyrant's added subroutines, which are end the run. I mean, they're, I guess they're useful if they're in bulk, but as we discussed at length a couple episodes back, a few episodes back, it's just not likely to get a bulk amount of net damage out of woodcutter. Now, without venturing too much into the data sucker segments territory, the low-cost barriers are one-to-one, strength-to-res-cost, ice wall, wall of static. 
While originally the more expensive barriers were not, Hadrian's Wall was 10 res, 7 strength. Wall of Thorns was 8 res, 5 strength. Heimdall, 8 res, 6 strength. Now, Reboot has brought down the res cost to make all of those high-strength barriers more useful and closer to being that one-to-one ratio. Uh, Hadrian's Wall now uh, 7 to 7, right? Uh, Heimdall is 6 to 6. Wall of Thorns is 6 to 5. And so now that's also true of Tyrant. Instead of being 7 to 4, 7 res, 4 strength, now it's 5 to 4. Although this doesn't account for the added cost of putting a subroutine on it, which we'll talk about later. Wayland's new ID has 22 influence available. What does this tell us? It should tell us that it's not very good, and so it needs a lot of help. Now, if you want to advance a lot of ice, clearly this is the ID that you want to use. One advancement costs a click and a credit. So giving you a recurring credit per turn to do this means basically it's half price, which is good. I mean, that's a nice benefit for advancing ice if that's what you want to do. And that that saving you the one credit, so basically it gives you, in a sense, if you think of it this way, it gives you a credit per turn to advance ice. But still, if that's what you're doing, a credit per turn. This seems to align in theory with other IDs because if you think a credit is the same as a click, is the same as a card, that basic rubric. Hasbiroid's Engineering the Future gives you a credit per turn to install a card. Uh, Wayland's Building a Better World gives you a credit per turn. I'm sorry, a credit per transaction operation, although likely that's not going to be more than one per turn. Now that we have commercialization from the last pack and green level clearance and this one, uh, Wayland can run 12 of those. That could be your entire economy. So 12 turns of gaining an extra credit. Genteki's Replicating Perfection costs the runner a click to run a remote. So that's the same cost, it's just put onto the runner. And while we're at it, the other three vary from the seemingly more powerful. NBN gives you two credits a turn, not just one, although it's limited to traces, which apparently the designers feel like don't happen every turn. Stronger together raises the strength of each bioroid by one. Now, theoretically, that means that it should cost the runner more than one credit per turn. Like if they hit a bioroid, once per turn, it should be costing the runner a click per turn. I mean, a credit per turn. But if they run into multiple bioroids, it should be costing them multiple credits per turn. That Again, that sounds like it's really good. And then the seemingly less powerful were Genteki's personal evolution costs the runner a card, but only on agendas being scored or stolen. So that's less frequently than once per turn. But again, notice all of these are basically either a credit a click, or a card, with the sole exception of NBN's two credits, that either the runner loses or the corp gains each turn. And yet, despite these pretty strong similarities, these IDs are really not seen as comparable, or as I said, stronger together. That is not seen as a stronger ID. And that's true here too. The issue with because we built it seems to be Yes, you save yourself the credit for advancing ice. You make that credit back, so to speak. But are you advancing ice every turn? 
If you are, why exactly? Now, the advanceable ice from the corset just adds strength, which seems like a strong ability because that'll often cost the runner an extra credit to break it. But see Haas-Bayroids stronger together. In practice, that extra credit cost just doesn't feel as good or feel as powerful. Now, this new suite of cards that we've been seeing, Woodcutter, Tyrant, Salvage, coming up in the next pack, they add subroutines when they are advanced. Now, as we have analyzed ice, we basically say we can break down any piece of ice into how much is its strength and how many subroutines does it have, add those two numbers together, and that's the target number, more or less, for the runner to try to hit. So adding subroutines ought to be similar in practice to adding strength, but these three pieces of ice are pretty widely reviled. Now, Reboot has tried to salvage them, if you will, by making them less expensive. Uh, Because we built it, this new identity makes woodcutter a lot better. I mean, to make it a taxing piece of ice we established is going to cost you four credits and four clicks. So now, with because we built it, over the course of four turns, it's only going to cost you the four clicks. That makes the price of it becoming a taxing piece of ice half price. But still, is that worth the effort? Apparently, Fantasy Flight thought so, based on how they costed everything. But the community came to a different conclusion. So, to help compensate for that different conclusion, the Reboot Project gives Wayland seven more influence to play with. Basically, a 50% increase in influence. So now Wayland can explore things to do with those advancement. Things like importing Trick of Light more easily, for example. Maybe that's an option. Uh, Wayland is also the last corp to get a big agenda. We've seen HB get a 6-2 in mandatory upgrades. NBN got a 5-3 with restructured data pool. And Genteki, I'm sorry, Genteki got a 5-2. Well, now it's a 4-2, but originally it was a 5-2 in fetal AI. As usual, Genteki is sort of off doing its own thing. But Wayland's government contracts, also a 5-3, sort of fits along with HB and NBN because it gives the corp something else to do. Mandatory upgrades, that something else to do, is a click every turn to do something else. Restructured data pool, data pool, I should say it consistently, is a new clickability where you can trace for a tag on demand, which can be very powerful. And government contracts is a new click ability. Actually, it's a double click ability to gain five credits, though originally it was only four. Now, I would suggest that this ability is calibrated to a similar agenda that's coming up in the first deluxe box called Gila Hands Arcology, which is a neutral 3-1 agenda that also has a click-click ability, but it grants three credits. Now, it's a common theme in Netrunner that getting incrementally more money requires significantly larger investments. Some examples include Armitage Code Busting, which costs one to install but gets you two credits per turn, versus Liberated Account, which costs you six to install but gets you four credits per turn, or 
per use. Or the classic Easy Mark or Beanstalk royalties, which costs you zero credits to gain three, versus Sure Gamble or Hedge Fund, where you have to have five credits in the bank in order to gain four. It's only a difference of one credit gain between those two. But it seems off to go from scoring a 3-1 in Gila Hands gives you three credits for two clicks, whereas scoring the 5-3 in government contracts, which is a, a faction-specific agenda too, only gives you four credits for two clicks. I mean, it's significantly harder to score a 5-3. Now, sure, you're also getting the benefit of three agenda points instead of one. Obviously, that's not nothing. But I think the ability is just not there. I remember reading that the corset and Genesis cycle were designed in tandem. right? So we might think of the corset as the first thing that came out and the Genesis cycle they then came out later. But in original design and development, that entire card pool was being designed together, and then they split out the core set. So we can view the Genesis cycle as just an extension of the two of the core set. That the, to, the two together are the real full core set. Looked at this way, if this is true, then really the first deluxe box is the first expansion that was actually designed after the core set, although because of production, probably still before the core set was actually released, or it's probably mostly fully designed by that point. I would guess, that being the case, that the design team noticed that this agenda for Wayland is relatively weak. Because if they'd thought it was calibrated correctly, that a 5-3 gives you click-click four credits, then wouldn't Gila Hands have been a 4-2 to click-click give you 3? And then maybe there would be, I mean, there's no reason to have a click-click give you 2. But they set it at a 3-1. So here, Reboot sort of imposes a nice symmetry where the 3 advanced agenda gives you 3 credits, the 5 advanced agenda gives you 5 credits. It just makes sense. It also leaves open a spot for a 4 advanced agenda that can give you 4 credits though I don't believe such a card actually uh, exists. All right, so I guess that was not truth in advertising because that was not a brief set of comments. I was able to add a lot, I suppose. Uh, Whether it was interesting? Mm. Mm. Hopefully it was. Mandatory upgrades. Green level clearance. Originally, for one credit, you were able to gain three credits and one card. And to me, this already seemed pretty decent. I think it was included in a lot of decks. It was roughly equivalent to Beanstalk royalties or anonymous tip, right? Because you spend one, but you get three in a card. So add those together. You spend one, you get four somethings. And with Beanstalk and Anonymous Tip, you spend zero and get three somethings. It's the same. You're gaining three somethings. And at one influence, it's clearly intended to be easily splashed into other factions for decks that are more interested in a little extra card draw than the extra cash. 
But now it's been boosted so it's three credits and two cards. So rather than being more comparable to Beanstalk or Anonymous Tip, it's more like hedge fund, right? Where you, you gain four somethings. In hedge fund's case, it's four credits. In green level clearance's case, it's two credits and, I'm sorry, two credits and two cards. Two credits gained and two cards. That seems like a pretty good upgrade. Um, I don't really have a specific reason for why that was necessary. It seemed like it was pretty good without any kind of buff. Maybe I'm just not thinking of a particular card from later in the card pool that obviates this one. I'm not sure. I know there's a blue level clearance coming up soon. Anyway, especially for Wayland, building a better world, it's a transaction, so Wayland's going to be very interested in this new, improved version of green level clearance. Data sucker. New ice options. There are four new pieces of ice in this pack. And I'm not going to rehash the definitions of binary ice and analog ice or taxing ice. I'm just going to jump right in and sort them. So we have one new end the run ice in Tyrant. Now I've just spent quite a while discussing it. But from this context, as for whether it's binary or analog and the run, well, clearly it's neither when you first res it. That's a big part of why it's weak. But once it's been advanced, once, you now have a one sub, four strength barrier, which Corroder can dispatch for just three credits. So that fits our definition of an on the bubble between analog and taxing. It depends on how much money the runner deck is generating. Now, once it's been advanced a second time, it's definitely analog, because even for Corroder, it's taking four credits to break. But you've invested seven credits and two clicks, you know, assuming you're not using some other trick. So wouldn't you be better off with Hadrian's Wall? I mean, Hadrian's Wall is seven credits and no clicks and seven strength. Now, maybe there's something to be said, I guess, for only having to pay five to res it rather than seven all at once, like Hadrian's Wall. I don't know. I feel like Tyrant is still too weak personally to be played. Um, but it does qualify as an on the bubble to perhaps analog, low analog, and the run. We have two new pieces of taxing ice in Euroboros and Hourglass. Let's talk about Hourglass first. Even if the if the runner is hitting it on click one. It is a pretty serious piece of analog taxing ice because it either is going to cost five, even for Gordian Blade to cut through, or three additional clicks. That's the runner's whole turn if it face plants, the runner face plants into Hourglass on turn one. But there's a reason that Hourglass now costs only one. Because except for the first encounter, it's not likely to get that full value again. All the runner has to do is run later in the turn. If the runner goes on click two, well, now one of those subroutines is useless. And so it only costs four credits or two clicks to get through. Still analog, still taxing. If the runner goes on click three, well, now it's only three credits or one click lost. It's kind of down into Enigma category at this point. But here's the kicker. If the runner goes on click four, 
It's nothing at all. They just walk right through it for no cost. Now, making the runner run on click four to save that money, that's not nothing. I mean, running on click four can be kind of dangerous. And it synergizes well with other cards that HB can trot out, like Bioroids, right? No clicks left to go through them. Or Ash, no clicks left to run again. So it's kind of like, almost like a reverse piece of Advanceable Ice, like Enigma is, where the runner can remove subroutines simply by playing differently. Now, as for Uroboros, I mean, I don't know how to pronounce the word. Even online dictionaries don't agree. One place said Ouroboros, and one place said Uroboros, and one place said Uroboros. And I've been saying it, Uroboros. Um, anyway, however you pronounce it, even if you use our still anachronistic garot as the baseline, it's two strength. It's four to break both subroutines with Uroboros. Um, although if the runner's not worried about making another run this turn, it's only three. And that might be true. Often the runner only runs once per turn. Also cost ninja the same amount. Now, since it's taxing ice, of course, the runner doesn't actually need the breaker, but these are trace fours. That is a hefty trace. That's the biggest trace we've seen on ice so far. There are a couple other that also have a trace four, but trace four is the top end. So it's probably going to cost even more without a breaker if you want to break just the end the run subroutine as the runner, you're probably spending four which is more than you would spend if you're going to break it with a, uh, with a breaker, with a killer. So this is pretty obviously analog taxing, though it's mid-range, I suppose, with a breaker. Uh, without, it can be pretty heavy if you're trying to break both. And our fourth piece of ice this time is Bullfrog, which is another goofy combo piece code gate from the minds of Jinteki. The first thing most people gravitate to is how, oh, look, if I, if I put Bullfrog on, I can jump you to a different server that has cell portal and bounce you back out to Bullfrog and then jump you somewhere else. Or Is that going to happen, though? It's not going to happen. Uh, it's maybe the, the single thing that doing this podcast and coming back to Netrunner has helped me to appreciate is don't get so invested in what the subroutines on ice are. Because so often, they don't go off. Either they are just broken, and so it's just an extra cost for the runner to get through, or the runner doesn't go there in the first place because they don't want to deal with the subroutine. So it's rare for the subroutine to actually happen, especially more than once. I mean, a run is a runner going to run into Bullfrog if they can't handle it on purpose? Why would they do that? It's just going to bounce them to some different server. And if you do get bounced to a different server, you don't have to keep running. You pass that ice and then you just jack out. So in some cases, Bullfrog can function as a sort of a soft end the run in the sense that it doesn't have an end the run subroutine, but it, it functions as an end the run because if they can't break it, yes, they can get through, but then they're moved somewhere else. And maybe you move them somewhere that they can't handle or move them onto archives if there's nothing there that's useful for them. 
Even though it's only three to break with Gordian Blade, I'm going to group it in with Chum and Sensei and call it Combo Ice. Because it's not really taxing. Again, yes, you can run through it, but then you're going to end up somewhere else. Although, I guess if you want to play the double reverse mind game with Jinteki, I'm going to run on your bullfrog and mind game you into dropping me onto the server that I really want to go on, not the one it's protecting. The Maker's Eye, Mauricio Herrera. This is a, an artist who was originally from Chile, now lives in Mexico City, and he was one of the most, in fact, the most prolific artist in the early days of the game. Maybe for some people, this is what they think of as what Netrunner looks like, because there's so many cards that he did. For me, um, this is the first artist I'm highlighting whose work just, it isn't for me. It's a bit more, especially with the people, it's a bit more cartoonish than what I'm looking for from the theme of the game. But because he's so prolific, it seemed like worth mentioning. I, I thought about talking about him first, but again, I wanted to focus on artists that I preferred. But obviously somebody at FFG liked his work because from the core set, he did Criminal's Bank Job, Data Dealer, and Decoy, the Neutral Card Crypsis, and Armitage Code Busting. For HB, he did Experiential Data. For NBN, Closed Accounts, although that's not representative of his work because it's just numbers. C Source, I'm sorry, SEA Source. For Wayland, he did Hostile Takeover and Posted Bounty. Actually, I really like Posted Bounty. That one is cool. But I also don't think it's cartoonish in the same way that his other work is. And also the Neutral Card Private Security Force. Meanwhile, for the Genesis cycle, he has done Cortez Chip, Mandatory Upgrades, Ash, E3 Feedback Implants, Public Sympathy, Marked Accounts, Private Contracts, Inside Man, and in this pack, Green Level Clearance. Coming up, Indexing, which is also part of the Genesis cycle, but after that, only two more, Manhunt and Zona Sewell Shipping. So I don't know why they used this uh, Mr. Herrera for 23, 21 cards in the first two cycles and then barely any others. Uh, maybe he just wasn't available. Maybe he wasn't interested. I don't know. Interestingly, though, Null Signal Games has returned to him because he has one card in Parhelion, which was the previous um, pack they released, and three more in the just-released Automata initiative. Automata? initiative. So uh, he made a return to the game for Null Signal, which is uh, good for him and for those who are fans of his work. If you want to take a look at some other work of his, you can visit his website, which is lgrimlock.com. I also provide links for his Deviant Art and Art Station pages in the show notes. And in fact, many of the cards discussed in this week's episode are linked in the show notes. Music for the podcast is provided by Alexi Action. The website, which redirects you to the Reboot Project homepage, is netrunner2.1.com. If you want to play Reboot games, you can go to retechy.fun. If you want to find Reboot games, the easiest way is on our Discord server. And you can contact me on any of the main normal 
Netrunner-related places. My username is Auberman, A-W-E-B-E-R-M-A-N, and my email address is anreboot2.1 at gmail.com. The AstroScript pilot program for this time around is Bioroids, and uh, there's a, actually a, a diagram. It's like the Vitruvian Man, actually, picture of Bioroids, and has uh, little call-outs, little uh, comments about different parts of the Bioroids body. I'll provide that link, the link to that image in the usual places. Anyway, till next week, thanks for listening. Bioroids The technologies used in creating a bioroid are easily some of the most sophisticated in existence. The complex optical computer brains, sturdy titanium chassis, and smooth-action polyfiber muscle bundles all add up to a massively ambitious and cutting-edge piece of machinery. The actual construction of a bioroid begins with a series of brain tapes, or digital models, of the human mind. Each brain tape is unique, and Haas Bioroid's computational neuroscientists distill and synthesize the desired skill sets and personalities from each in a process called neural channeling. This forms the blueprint for the bioroid's optical brain a complex network of linked microcomputers that forms a series of neural pathways similar to a human connectome, a diagram of all the neural connections on a cellular level. These microcomputers are what give the bioroid its personality, as well as its ability to learn and adapt. Linked to the optical brain is a more conventional quantum brain that handles the bioroid's more basic programming, such as one might find in a computer console. This affords the bioroid the best of both human intelligence and pure computational power. During the neural conditioning phase, each bioroid AI is programmed with a set of descending directives that prescribe and proscribe its behavior at the most fundamental level. These directives are present in all models and are unable to be changed. The first directive states that a bioroid may not kill or cause serious harm to a human, nor can its inaction lead to the same. The second directive states that the bioroid's job functions are its first priority, except where it would violate the first directive. The third directive states that the bioroid must report to Haas Bioroid for regular maintenance, when doing so would not violate the first or second directives. Often this is a simple visit to the nearest HB showroom, but in the case of the more sophisticated or prototype models, this can entail a journey up the beanstalk to HB's R&D facility on Luna. Other directives are believed to exist. Often these concern the behavior of a specific model. Anyone who spends enough time with bioroids 
we'll notice that almost all models will instantly refute any criticism leveled against Haas-Bioroid or justify decisions HB has made regarding its product lines. More paranoid citizens allege that Bioroids keep vids and odd logs of their owners for upload to the HB servers during weekly maintenance. As complex machines, Bioroids require some upkeep in order to perform at optimum. This maintenance might take the form of a simple shutdown and repair, tightening loose joints, replacing worn seals or synth skin, refitting errant wiring, and recharging internal batteries. The entire process can take less than an hour, thereby minimizing the unit's downtime. Sometimes the process is more involved. Replacing a damaged limb or overhauling a power source can take days to complete. Thankfully, due to a Bioroid's extreme durability, these occasions are rare. Weekly maintenance is important not only for the Bioroid's physical shell, but for its quantum brain as well. Shutdown can help break any algorithmic recursions or other infinite loops that may be draining a Bioroid's processing power. During the nightly hibernation routine, Nanobots in the Bioroid's optical brain are able to rewire its synthetic neural connections based on data absorbed during activity, just like a sleeping human brain would. This process is what allows Bioroids to learn and develop, and it is what sets them apart from more mundane, weak AI constructs. Confidential Floyd 2X3A7C, currently trialing as a detective at the NAPD, is an example of Haas Bioroid's new line of high-end bioroids, featuring personality indices based on the brain tape of Redacted. This model features the most intelligent and advanced AI in production. Currently testing in specific markets, full commercialization achievable by Redacted. 360-degree sensors. In addition to top-rated binocular vision, Floyd 2X3A7C is equipped with full surveillance coverage from optical sensors all over its body. 2X3A7C's parallel brain runs a constant model of its surroundings, ensuring that the unit cannot be surprised by an assailant or miss an important clue. Wireless Network Uplink Titanium Chassis Optical Brain All bioroids are equipped with a dual brain, which includes a parallel quantum computer as well as an optical brain comprised of over 50 billion optical switches. The optical brain operates on many of the same principles as a human brain, and is built according to a template generated by Haas Bioroid's patented neural channeling protocols. Hydrogen Fuel Cell Floyd 2X3A7C is powered by high-efficiency hydrogen fuel cells, which are good for approximately one week of normal activity. 2X3A7C can recharge during down cycles simply by plugging into the power grid. Weekly maintenance 
and exchange of the fuel cells is recommended by Haas Bayeroid. Hydraulic Actuators Floyd 2X3A7C is equipped with a full complement of hydraulics, the equal of any heavy-duty android currently on the market. In optimal conditions, the unit can lift over one ton. 2X3A7C is aware of its strength and uses caution. It is likely that the ground beneath its feet or the object being lifted will break before the android does. Polyfiber Muscle Clusters The Bioroid's polyfiber muscle clusters simulate human muscle activity and provide a high degree of flexibility and versatility to Floyd 2X3A7C. Polyfiber muscles can adjust and stabilize force applied by the hydraulic actuators, and they are capable of extreme subtlety and dexterity when required. 2. Executive Vice President Carl Meyer From Isabel McGuire Subject, Future Directions K. A number of issues have crossed my desk, and I need you to run them by the director. I understand you have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with her later this week. That should be perfect. The nerds down in bits and brains are complaining about the alterations they've been told to make. No one team is able to understand the bigger picture. If we're doing this to help push some other project forward, are we ahead of the PR game? If word gets out that we've altered them, we could take a major hit. If the director's planning something the public already won't like, it's twice as bad. Can you feel her out? Make sure she's on message? Second, I don't like these live-fire stress tests being handled in-house. I know better than to ask why these tests are necessary, but if we're going to start shooting bullets at them, at least let the professionals do it. Can we bring in someone from next? If word gets out and people start asking questions about bulletproof bioroids and link it to the modifications, HB could be in a world of trouble. Thanks, Isabel. P.S. Hollow golf on Tuesday, right? <laughs>